Welcome to Super Serious Film Fest, our theme series of movie reviews. This season covers the best and the worst of Nick Cage. The summer and winter of his career. In what we're calling Season of the Cage. All right, you said something right before we turned on the cameras that I laughed out loud at, which I said, uh, man, what's to say? There's This is a the terrible movie that doesn't work on hardly any level. And you said, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know if it's a terrible movie. Uh-huh. Uh... How do you not know that it's a terrible movie? Here's the thing. I think if you take Nicolas Cage out of this movie, it instantly becomes a better movie, but also completely forgettable at the same time. Because I, I, I don't think by the time by the standards of the time that this is an awfully bad movie. Really? I think the music holds up. I think the basic premise is there. But yeah, I, I did not find this to be a particularly poorly made movie or a badly written movie. I think... It was sabotaged by Nick Cage and the cast of characters around him, which are forced to interact with a lunatic. Because I, I think you said, I think you're right that, I, but, but no, I think you're wrong. I think Nick Cage, <laughs> okay. Nick Cage, Nick Cage makes this movie. Nick Cage is the only 100%. reason. Nick Cage is the only reason to see this movie because if you put any other leading man in here that makes conventional choices, this is a shitty version of Mannequin, I guess. Like it's, it's mediocre. It's not. It's right. not shitty. It's not great. It's just blah. But it just has nothing that's really the going worst for kind, it. To me, that's the worst kind of shitty. It's not like entertaining shitty. You know, Nick Cage makes this into the room. Mm-hmm. which is entertainingly shitty. You can derive entertainment from watching the crazy over-the-top thing. If you had just a, a replacement-level actor in here, you would have something that is just bad and but inoffensive. I, I disagree. I, I don't think it's bad. I think it's something you don't want to watch, huh. but I don't think it's bad. I think it's I don't, a mediocre film. Huh. I, I guess I don't understand the distinction. I, maybe that's the okay. thing. It's like there's like... If something's not good, it's by definition bad in my eyes. Um, like a mediocre mm. thing is like uh, a worthy attempt at something that just didn't quite work out. But this just... I, I mean, I agree with you. There is something here uh, in this vampire psycho- psychological uh, flick. But this thing it wants to be... I tread the line between that a psychological thriller and a black comedy. And mm-hmm. it's, I, I will say tonally, it's a, a bit of a clash. Right. Um, that there are... They're going for something that they don't quite hit, but I don't think they completely miss either. Mm. Like a lot of the vampire stuff, I think frankly works. Um, mm. And the 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 theme at the end, they're going for kind of two different themes. One of them, I think they hit better than the other. But I I don't know. I don't think this is a bad movie. I think it's simply a forgettable movie that happens to have Nicolas Cage in it, which makes it eminently watchable. Yes, I th- it's definitely worth watching just for his crazy <laughs> yeah. ass uh, late '80s uh, Cage performance alone. I'm a vampire. Kill me. Kill me. <laughs> I also think that Nick Cage is a lightning rod for this film, and if he weren't in it, a lot of those critical lightning bolts would hit and destroy other parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. So, like, he is 
kind of masking. He's a very strong flavor that's masking the overall reality of this being a shit sandwich. But again, subjective opinion. Do you want to get to the? Uh, just let me tell people the premise if you haven't seen it, and I imagine a lot of people haven't. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is actually available on Prime for free. Mm-hmm. If you have Amazon Prime, you can go on Amazon right now and watch it. It's an hour and 40 minutes, and you've had worse uses of your time for sure. The basic premise of the movie is Nick Cage plays an eccentric New York literary agent named Peter Lowe, who is something of a freewheeling and shallow playboy, but somehow self-aware enough to regularly see a therapist. One night, his latest sexual conquest turns out to be a vampire who quickly enslaves Peter both emotionally and sexually. His ensuing obsession with his dark mistress quickly sends his life into a tailspin as he terrorizes the women at his office and in the clubs of Manhattan, giving Mr. Cage multiple opportunities to sink his pointy teeth into all available scenery and chew for all he's got. And I think, Jim, this is the one time I can use the phrase chewing the scenery literally. Yeah. Nick Cage at a point in this movie grabs props and scenery and chews on them aggressively. Uh huh. So I think at this point, everyone is kind of neatly sorted into categories of whether they want to see this movie or not. So let's 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 get into it. Um, do you want? Here's the thing. Let me let me throw out this as a bit of a defense of my this is not a bad movie. Okay. <laughs> uh, which I couldn't do in the non-spoiler section. Okay. Okay. This has American Psycho like written all over it, right? I mean, this is 12 years before American Psycho was made, and I feel like they just remade Vampire's Kiss with a Wall Street guy instead of a literary agent. And made him a... And made him just a psycho. Like, just yeah, yeah, just a serial killer instead of a vampire, which right. is a type of serial killer. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I, I think you're right, and there... And that's what's interesting is there's a similar over-the-top manic energy in Christian Bale's performance. There is, yeah. Where, at, but, but it's restrained by some kind of rules and logic in the film where Nick Cage, like, it, and it's yeah. from the, it's from the very opening frames of this film where he establishes this bizarre accent. I, I read in an interview that he based this on his father, who consciously adopted what he thought was an urbane cultured continental accent later in his life Mm -hmm. so that people would think he is important and intelligent and i think it sounds like uh christopher walken trying to work his way around the appalachian accent with a mouthful (laughs) of marbles and it's all over the place like anytime nick is screaming he can't pull it off it just is nick cage it's only when he's I, and I, the other thing is like I like trying to play with accents. This accent confounds me. I can't hold it for like if I hear him say a phrase like I drained the bitch dr- bone dry. I can kind of hang with it, but it just goes away after two or three sentences. It's not something I could easily riff on. Well, neither can Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the true fault of it is Nicolas Cage himself, and he can't hold the accent any better than you can, and I. I've read the commentary. I haven't actually listened to the commentary, but I yeah, basically yeah, yeah. skimmed an entire right, right, right. Uh, transcript, transcription yeah. of it. Him and the director both say that at times during this movie, Nicolas Cage drops the accent intentionally. Intentionally. Oh, oh. And I might believe that, but there are definitely times where he does not drop it intentionally, but he drops it nonetheless. Why does he drop it intentionally? Is it supposed to show that the vampiric nature of him is holding sway? <laughs> well, nothing quite that because I, I, fanciful. What? No, it, it's about like when he needs to act important, essentially. 
But why? Because like that seems at when odds. he's trying to exert his his when authority he picks the and power. Up? Yeah. Uh, because I thought when I first saw this movie and in early goings is because I, I you know vampires kiss I knew it was something about vampires Nick Cage is a vampire or something uh, I didn't know the twist of the film but I I thought that he was going for some kind of Hungarian mm-hmm. by way of Yonkers sort of accent <laughs> okay but yeah. no it just like he he was just trying to affect this so I guess does he think his father is kind of an ass because it sounds like it like if if my father faked a weird ass transylvanian hillbilly accent to feel important i'd be like okay old man this is this is a story i'm going to tell my kids and not in a flattering kind of way no it's a A cautionary tale very weird thing to do and i don't i don't know i I couldn't get a read based on the transcription on how he felt about it Hmm. uh he just said that he used it here's the other thing i found interesting in that interview is that he said he that parts of his face-off uh, performance were taken from his Vampire's Kiss performance. Yeah, I saw that. Which you can definitely see. I, I saw, well, I mean, honestly, everything, this feels like the ground, the epicenter for all of the Nick Cage scale. Like He sets perfect fives in several categories. He mentioned that this film, he considered his like acting laboratory where he's allowed to free lane, yeah. free reign to ex- explore space and time and all that other stuff, and I I guess that's right because every time you see him turn it up to eleven, he did it first in this movie, like like with the weird gesticulations and the the the, the way he he punches certain words and the things he does with his face and um like like his like the the hysterical crying he does it's all. All there, all there. Now he calls it expressionistic. I don't know what that means. I don't really. Either. I don't know. The Nick I'm not Cage a film does. student, but I, that's what he calls it. I will say that in the Super Serious Film Fest, I kind of uh, my pre- my prejudice going in this film or going in this film fest was that Nick Cage is a pretty cool dude. That because of eccentricities and desperation, financial desperation, was forced to take unfortunate projects. Mm-hmm. I think that's still true. I don't think he's that self-aware. Like the interviews I've seen him in recently, like Mandy and this uh, this transcript of the of the the commentary I saw. This just seems like a, a guy who. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe this method is brilliant because it's not like that he can't be effective in films. It's just he seems way up his own ass about it. Uh, that That's, he's like he's yeah. he's created some kind of alchemical fusion, entirely next level acting technique, and it's just he calls it nouveau shamanistic acting. Yes, yes, at yes. some point, which yeah. fuck me if I know what that means. No but, one does. But uh, <laughs> Nick Cage doesn't even really know what that means. But I, everything I've read in these interviews with him, uh, and I did a lot of digging on this movie in particular mm-hmm. because I wanted to know how the hell you get to this performance, right? He's yes, he said it was his laboratory. He said it was expressionistic. In my mind, he views himself as a very serious actor, one who's willing to push the boundaries of what mm-hmm. traditional acting can be. Uh, and while also taking it back to that. roots of uh-huh. of some kind of I don't know German German impressionism, whatever it is, or like some kind of big stagey kind of thing. Too. Yeah, and and I think he takes that part of himself very seriously. And yet, mm-hmm. I see him talk about you know the the internet culture's portrayal of him Mm -hmm. as this ridiculous over-the-top uh person human being not just actor 
and he gets that he understands that that's how people view him and he doesn't seem to care much Mm. but he also doesn't seem to view himself that way he Mm. views himself more as an actor with a capital a Mm -hmm. i mean i think there's that thing if it wasn't for his public statements i think there's definitely evidence for that but his public (laughs) statements just seems like if he has the right director and the right project that can properly channel his energies, then you get something. But uh, you know what? You can say that about a lot of great actors. Marlon Brando, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. Complete fucking train wrecks in some movies. Honestly, he's a train wreck in The Godfather. It's just that it happened to be the train wreck that film needed. Like, this guy's packing. He's just reading <laughs> off of post-it notes as he cast his eyes all around the set. And he's, he's his mouth yeah. is packed full of cotton. Like, none of that <laughs> shit should work. This is shit you would hear about Nicolas Cage and go, yeah, no, that sounds yeah, right. Yeah, like, like if, if uh, Vampire's Kiss turned out to be like this erotic thrill that everyone talked about in the late 80s, you could clearly see the things he's saying make sense. And I guess that's the, that's the thing that... You know, it's like that uh, the quadrant of like you got good process, bad process, good outcome, bad outcome, and how you can have bad processes lead to good outcomes and confuse you. Mm-hmm. I think that's what happened in 1987 that he had, well, he had a bad process make a bad result, but he convinced him that it was good. So he took that yeah. bad process, and sometimes it comes a good result, sometimes, but it's not because the process itself is sound. Okay, I have. A serious question to pose you with. Well, this is the right film fest to ask it because this is super serious. This is a super serious fucking question, and I hope it breaks your brain. Tell me, what is the difference between the performance that Brad Pitt gives in 12 Monkeys, which everybody thinks is awesome, uh-huh. and the performance that Nicolas Cage gives in Vampire's Kiss, or really anything he's ever been in? Uh, I guess the context? Cause, but they're, but- both psy- they're both psychopaths, right? Yeah, but it's like asking the difference between the you know the Bateman character and American Psycho and and Nick Cage. Like it was just a better, more interesting, cohesive movie. And I think that the one of the the fatal one of the fatal flaws. There's a couple, but one of the fatal flaws of this movie is they don't establish the protagonist uh, at Peter. They don't establish him as a guy that you can empathize with. He seems like a lunatic from the jump. But yeah. the movie, the, the last act essentially is trying to wheeze by on audience sympathy to what's happening to Peter and him slowly losing his mind in a way that I guess I, I don't think American Psycho did. American Psycho was... First, I'll question asking you to question whether this stuff is real or not. And I felt like um, the other thing, the other fatal flaw of the movie is they made it way too obvious that Nick Cage is not, in fact, turning into a vampire. He's just suffering some sort of compound delusion. Uh, whereas you could argue after a first watch of American Psycho whether, in fact, this guy is a serial killer or not. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think those are two, the, the two fundamental weaknesses of... Uh, of the film so mm-hmm. if this had- I, I just don't know that, that says anything about his performance though i think it's just as weird uh brad pitt's performance 12 monkeys is just as weird as his performance here hmm i think 12 monkeys though is a much weirder film because like, so that's, that's the other thing yeah. this film is very square in it's like sensibilities and the way it's shot and you know, it's uh, the, the the subject matter is gonzo about a guy you know that that thinks he's a vampire but and and that that's where the the dark comedy 
I think also it could have built into a third act of a dark comedy that would have landed, but he starts killing people. No, you're you're absolutely right about the dark comedy stuff. I think this movie does clash in tone. Like it's I think this is a comedy. Mm. It, like what's your opinion on that? Is this movie a comedy or is this be, a, but a serious be, drama? It'd be like if I told you American Psycho is a comedy. Mm. I think it's the same thing. Like American Psycho like could interpret be interpreted as a dark comedy, but its tone is it knows what lane it's in. Yeah. This film kind of teetered all over the place. And I, there's also, I, I read some, in the same interview, the same uh, the same commentary that we got the bulk of our background information, I'm sure. Uh, the director, he's just, uh, he's, a, he's a piece of Nick Cage. He's pretentious as fuck. He's talking about, like, these long shots of the city are supposed mm-hmm. to, uh, supposed to develop this oppressive feel, like the, the city itself is driving Nick Cage crazy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of one-off scenes of that too. Like there's this uh, this girl in the press pit, or not the press pit, but whatever the secretarial bullpen is, and she's saying, "Oh boy, oh boy, I can't wait for the weekend." And this is pretty much the performance. Yeah. I can't wait for the weekend. This job, I gotta sleep all weekend. This job's driving me crazy. And I'm like, "What in the fuck?" Boy, our boss is such an eccentric, isn't he? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. It's like they're saying something about how modern life is driving you. Like, it is insane that you. I mean, this is this is like eighties rock and roll kind of. Everybody's working for the weekend. But don't forget, this is insight. made in nineteen eighty eight. I mean, yeah, this is of the era where. So you're saying this uh, is a cry for help. Like, like this if was, you want to say that anything is played out, look at fucking American Psycho. Yeah, this movie did it in the '80s, back when it was a thing, and American Psycho is going for it in 2000. But here's the thing: you can always remake something that didn't work. <laughs> you okay. can't. You can't fall, and you can also make some. You can follow up something that didn't work. That that worked with something that's a new take on it. The only time you get in trouble is when you don't get over the bar of what came before you. Or you literally just do an updated version that is not interesting, except for it's got a fresh cast and slightly newer film filmmaking techniques. So I think American Psycho, like, yeah, it's it's derivative if you're aware of this uh, Vampire's Kiss movie a little bit from a cockeyed view. But whereas Vampire's Kiss doesn't work at all, it's like a, it's I think it's a terrible movie. Uh, American Psycho is like one of the one of the better films. Like it's it's you know an Academy Award nominee, if not a winner. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that the thing that they were building with New York uh, kind of being the antagonist here in mm-hmm. in small part, and I think there are multiple antagonists, but uh, New York is certainly one of them. They're, they're building that with a lot of imagery, and I think it actually mostly worked for me. I don't think they quite got to where they wanted to go, but there are, you know, some opening shots in the beginning where, of the city, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like they were trying to evoke the the vampire even in those shots like you can see the chrysler building and the empire state building sort These of gothic as fangs yeah. biting into the sky almost right mm. like they're they're very much going for that and i think they almost got there yeah like if if the movie were a little co- more no, you, coherent overall they would they would get there I, I, or yeah i mean that's but that's you they can say that about connect the dots if things were better it would have worked yes yes but it's like i feel like you're drinking a little bit of robert bierman's kool-aid there because i saw these shots as not only not working but incredibly indulgent like you know he got budget to make 145 or an hour 45 movie and he gets done and it's like a 127 so it's like okay 
Let's go through, and there's like two separate scenes of five minutes of New York City menacingly glowering. And there's multiple scenes of like in the club where it's just there's no dialogue. It's just scenes of the club and this low stakes stuff and it goes on forever. Uh, and it just pads the movie out. Like this movie is about an hour 15 at best and it's uh, got 30 minutes of filler in it. And in fact, I'm, I actually think huh. that this movie was structurally supposed to be three encounters with the vampire woman and for whatever reason, he went into Eddington Bay, and I'm convinced the first two encounters that Nick Cage has with the vampire woman are literally the same film shot. Yeah, they are. And I don't know if that's to suggest that... Because if that's to suggest that it's right up front, it's a fantasy, you're supposed to notice, like, oh, this is literally the same outfit, same shot, same everything, but... And, and the movie does do a couple of those, like, nice touches. For example... With the night after he gets done having sex with a vampire woman, uh, he cuts himself shaving in exactly the same place he supposedly bites, mm-hmm. gets bitten, which establishes the Band-Aid. And you can kind of see where in his mind he is taking all these things happening to him and kind of running with it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I got bit in the neck. And you know, so I don't know, maybe, but it seems thematically that it would be interesting if she bit him exactly three times and turned him into a vampire because there's also there's that, that was a piece of like mid eighties vampire lore. I feel like, you know, twice bitten, once shy. Yeah. You know, like you get bite. that's what made you a vampire three bites and you're done. And they went for that, but then it kind of got lost in, in the translation. Yeah. They, I feel like almost the, the third bite is the very end where he sees her in the club. Um, and it's not as, as literal as, biting on the neck mm-hmm. uh but this movie is very much in my opinion and i th- i think they know what they're going for here mm-hmm. uh i don't think i just pulled this out of my ass it's about a man with anger issues who is in high school spurned by uh the woman that he loves his high school sweetheart he says i love you to her she breaks up with him because they're so much different than each other uh and he has issues with women and anger and uh, to the point where he lashes out at women, both demeaning them, but also physically assaulting and eventually murdering them. Mm-hmm. That, no, I, that's what I what I think has gone on here. Uh, and th- this fantasy, which we clearly see at the end of the movie, is someone he knows, uh-huh. someone he has not probably seen in a long time, someone who vaguely remembers him. Mm. I think that's his high school sweetheart, because mm. it says something about... There's a scene where... He's in the club and he shouts like high school and you can't dump me or something like that. I, it, it's it's there. It goes if back, you yeah. want to read it. No, I think you're right. And there's also something where every time he does something inhuman or or callous, he has an encounter with the vampire woman. Yeah. Like he, so so the first night he has sex with her, that's just like he has a dream that gets uh uh, mixed up with his the vampire the the bat that went through his apartment and the next day he ghosts for no reason the non vampire woman who's mm-hmm. the whole other kind of low stakes plot of this movie and then that night he's visited by the vampire who says oh I'm a jealous one and then then every time that he provokes his secretary he is then visited by the vampire woman so it's almost like as he as he loses his humanity and his connection of like normal functioning with people, then his vampirism increases mm-hmm. until the end of the movie where he has just, I don't know. Like he's, I think he thinks he might've killed Alva Alma or Alva Alva. 
And then he t- goes full fledged vampire, goes and gets his teeth, and then 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 actually kills a woman. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt like that stuff kind of tracked. Like this, he keeps sliding a little bit, and the, he has an imaginary visit of the vampire to kind of explain it and to 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 make it better. The other thing about that is, I think that this is sort of a self imposed th- this playboy lifestyle that he leads, right? is like this self-imposed moratorium on love mm. that is causing him to slowly lose his mind, right? He says that love is the thing he's looking for, and yet he's pining after this lost love from high school, getting in the way of any actual relationships with Jackie, for instance, the non-vampire girl. So so it's almost like a self-imposed uh, failing here. And I think that is ultimately what drives him insane, is that he can't get over this one instance where he was spurned uh, and now it's affecting every other relationship he ever has to the point where he can't get over it because he can't find the love that he craves because he's not over yeah. that one event. You know, no, it's, it's, it's like a weird catch 22 thing. But I, I think a lot of dudes do get stuck in that. I mean, that yeah, explains yeah. a lot of like the modern, like this, this incel movement you see where, you know, guys who are perfectly fine, uh, get have a negative experience with the woman, and then find a culture that tells them, "Oh, it's all their fault," and this, that, and the other, and it it, it turns them weird. Like it's it, it's kind of interesting to see a guy like Peter do that to self radicalize. Yeah, like he has one bad experience in high school, and that sets you against you know uh, women forevermore. But that does, I mean, it's kind of relevant for today because you see a lot of uh, movements where men are essentially saying that women are ruining the world and they need to, they want to go back to traditional roles and they wish that they lived in society where women were dependent on them. So they'd have easier pickings. And when I, I mean, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, a toxic mindset that's wrapped up here and on display in this film. And that's why I say that this movie is not necessarily bad because I think it does actually a really good job of conveying that without ever actually saying it Mm, mm -hmm. um i I think that is maybe the one part of this movie that is artfully done to the point where i'm like oh yeah no they actually have something here right uh you can say what you will about you know new york being a vampire that crushes the souls of men but yeah uh i think they they kind of nailed the love driving him insane aspect no i think i think you're right about that 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 does kind of track through um but because you're you're right, like this this loneliness and rage kind of fuels it. like you see when his side non vampire woman definitively breaks it off after he she, he insulted her twice, then he reacts very angrily. Like he destroys his apartment, he kicks his lamp, and like it's it's amazing. Like he's like <laughs> sparks fly, and, and and apparently this was all unscripted too. He was supposed this. to like smash a prop, and he ended up just trashing the entire apartment. This is what I love. Set. This, this here, and and the instance of him running down the sidewalk screaming, "I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire!" Yeah, right, right. This is the Nicolas Cage, in my opinion, that is so great. When it's not, it's not his performance in Mandy, where they call him in and say, mm-hmm. "Be Nicolas Cage." Right. It's, it's the one where scripted. they hire Nick Cage and they desperately beg him not to be crazy. Uh-huh. Please, Nick, don't literally chew the scenery. Don't destroy this fucking furniture that we need for the next shot yeah. please don't run down the street at that speed shouting these things and he does it anyway yeah, he yeah. fucking doesn't care about your direction he's there to give his performance yeah 
that's the Nick Cage I love, and it's the one that I didn't get in Mandy. Well, and some of it is like, even spiteful. Like the director tries to give him direction on the on the the, <laughs> the gate he's going to run. So Nick Cage, like, well, if you want me to run a different, I'm going to do it this way. And it's like, what the who the fuck does that? Yeah, and he's also fresh off a of Moonstruck, which he mentioned as being embarrassed. Like he thought that mm-hmm. he did a bad performance in this, so. He he, kind of won. I forget like what the deal is. He wanted to blow this movie off or something. But I, yeah, so so he he canceled this movie because um, he thought Moonlight Moonstruck was going to make him a star. And man, then I can't then, remember why he canceled, but I know they were going to bring in Judd Nelson right to play his role, which right would have been interesting. Would have been the forgettable film, I think. It probably would have. Yeah, there's the things that Nick Cage brought to the table, but there's things that I thought. Um, the director had in mind, and this is a nice little pivot because Nick Cage destroying the set. Did that actually was an accidental moment of grace? Because the destroyed set, like it turns into like a uh, like it very very much evokes this gothic ruined castle. Mm-hmm. You know, like with co- like it's it's not cobble. You have torn sheets and and cushions and uh, and 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 um, pigeon feathers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and pigeon feathers instead of like you know dusty cobwebs and and catacombs, but mm-hmm. like making I thought making a coffin out of his upside down couch that was kind of brilliant. Yeah, uh, I thought some of the and and I think that so, so do you think that was Nick, the result of Nick Cage destroying the set and then making lemon <laughs> aid out of lemons, Part or do you it, think yeah. that they actually called for that? No, I think they probably said, "How can we salvage this wreck?" of a room that we have right right because because i imagine what they were going to go for is like oh let's use the couch as a coffin yeah but with a very nice neat apartment you know like right. he he smashes a couple things but the next scene it's kind of back to normal but he's in the coffin yeah but yeah. they couldn't do that uh there's but there's a couple of things in the script that were absolutely intended for example when the vampire woman takes his hand and leads him up the staircase you're supposed to see that as a reverse, like the classic image of Nosferatu, yeah. Max Orloff, like climbing the staircase in this very odd gate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, they actually show the Nosferatu movie later on so that you're sure to get it. Yeah. Um, I thought, like, him doing the boo-hoo that I, I guess I got from the uh, commentary that that was him crying was written in the script as boo-hoo, boo-hoo. <laughs> Maybe the guy thinks that like you would actually cry like a normal person. Well, they, but Nick Cage delivering that boo hoo in kind of a shattered way made me actually think the character is emotionally stunted. He can't feel yeah. this remorse, but so he's performatively acting how he thinks he, sh- he should after he thinks he's killed a person, and this is what comes out. Like this is what a sociopath thinks a person in anguish would would do, and huh. that's. Kind of an interesting choice that you wouldn't have got if if uh, you had Judd Nelson just doing some right. stage crying. No, that's an interesting take on it. I, I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. The thing that I had heard that Nick Cage said is he wanted to see if he could literally say boo-hoo while crying and not make it sound childish. No, he couldn't. Failed. Well, I mean, childish is not the word I would use, so mm. congratulations. <laughs> like, I, I mean, ridiculous uh asinine sociopathic mockery crying sure uh those are all words i would use to describe (laughs) it but probably not childish actually uh i also thought his death scene like that's the one thing where you you would kind of fully expect uh some coppola bram stoker like fountains of blood and him thrashing around and just acting like an asshole 
but it it felt like okay, that's about what a person who wanted to die getting a stake through the heart would look like. Yeah, it was it was in it, it was from a, another version of this movie where this whole thing worked and this was an effectively like an emotional beat to close the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me talk about all the things that fucking didn't work now, uh, but were nevertheless like hysterical. Don't you dare say those fucking teeth. Don't you say it. Uh, no, I'm going to say it didn't work, but him hitting the street in those plastic fangs is a moment. Oh, it's it hilarious. Works. It works 100%. <laughs> if you're going for dark comedy, okay, this sure. is 100% but where they, you need to be. Were that, that feels like something they discovered in the editing bay. Like, ah, uh, we're going to call this a dark comedy. I, I disagree, man. I think they're going for comedy. I think that the way they <laughs> filmed that tooth scene, that reveal. But when he comes out and in the bright phone white call, teeth. And, yeah, I mean, they yeah, yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. They got to know that this is funny. Why does P- okay? Why does Peter buy the cheap fangs? He's got, he's loaded. He doesn't have access to. He doesn't have a credit card in 1987. Like this big swinging dick literary agent, like executive vice president level doesn't have. I didn't look closely enough in his wallet, but clearly he didn't have the cash on him. So I guess you're his secretary drained like his caper where he kidnapped her and brought her back to work drained him of that of that. But Mm -hmm. those cabbies, the real vampires out there in New York, (laughs) they sucked him dry. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I wasn't sure what I mean, obviously it, it is super funny. Yeah, and our kinda, reaction. He's kind of got the, the fangs watch. upside down because it gives him his massive underbite. And- <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck, man? What the actual fuck? And like it's a kind of a beast from Beauty and the Beast, where his yeah. he's got these outsized large incisors that are on the bottom side, and <laughs> it gives him this kind of weird <laughs> snaggletooth. So it it definitely works from a a ha ha level, and then. You know, him going and killing the woman in the VIP lounge. Mm-hmm. I can almost buy, like, it kind of worked that Nick Cage is kind of handsome and, and charming. And if, like, I'm imagining this woman who just did, like, a big bump of coke, sees this guy count Orloffing towards her with his artificial, he's got this teeth and he's smiling, he does his artificial court. She kind of, it's a joke. <laughs> like, this is an unconventional pass. And she's, right. she's like, okay, fine. This is a no. song I haven't seen before. Nothing reads threatening about it. Until he's tearing her throat out. Yeah. I thought that worked and It's didn't only work. threatening because we know that he's losing his shit, right? Right. And, right. and, and he's and just assaulted right. another woman. So. Yeah. No, it absolutely works. Right. Uh, my, my, one of my favorite parts of this movie is him stupefied walking through this club, right? Like, this is, he's in the trance. He's in the, yeah, the, vampire, the vampire trance. Yeah, trance, right. Nicolas Cage's stupefied face is incredibly stupid incredibly stupid so bravo to you sir yeah uh he looks just like the the idiot trance like he should yeah uh he's being called to his maker like he 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 walks up to the bouncer he punches him in his stomach walks right in the door and just stupefies his way across the dance floor Mm -hmm. it's it's great i love that scene yeah this might take us into the territory of the therapist but what what I did that this whole part of the film felt like the thesis that should have tied it together, but it's, it's just odd because I think none of these therapy scenes actually worked and they led up to him being essentially absolved by all the sins by the therapist for all the sins by the therapist, him her hooking him up with his ideal woman Mm -hmm. at zero effort that will love him unconditionally no matter how many women he's killed. 
And I wasn't sure. And then, then he's brutally murdered five minutes later. Mm. Uh, and he's kind of, but he's, but he's kind of at peace. Like I wasn't sure exactly what they were trying to say, other than the guy's gone crazy. But I already knew that. I think they're trying to say that he thinks finding love should be something that's simple for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet you can see, like, oh, all he had to do was say he's looking for love, and and the the psychiatrist would have hooked him up. You know, it would have come falling into his lap. Uh, but. Then the very next scene, within 10 minutes, as he's walking down the street with this woman talking to nobody, uh, he's already had this imaginary fight and they've broken up, right? <laughs> like, it, it, to me, it says he thinks it should be all so simple, but the very things that are in his nature are keeping him from ever fighting it. Hmm. Like, he's, he's, you know, he's turning into an asshole immediately. Yeah. So uh, that's what I got from it. Uh, do we want to talk about Because we haven't talked about the Alva plot. I mean, I don't know what there's much to say except for this is like the thing that primarily illustrates Peter turning this bestial monster is his complete tormenting of this poor woman named Alva. Yeah. But it's weird because I I don't know what the movie thinks about this because you're supposed to see this as monstrous behavior. But then we cut to the scene in the boardroom and this feels so heavy handed. But essentially Mm -hmm. all the executives are joking about it like it's. You know, this is just a fine thing to do to blow off steam. And right. his boss is only concerned about what women have written on the bathroom walls about his, un, you know, undoubtedly, undoubtedly epic campaign of sexual harassment assault against these women. Do you have an idea of like what? Because the thing is, is um, Alva is portrayed. She's like a middle aged woman, but she's portrayed like she's a teenager, like some kind of innocent virgin. And I say that because they show her home life. And she lives with her mom. She calls her mom mommy. Her mom treats her like a kid, like right out of high school. Like, you got to go. Everyone hates their boss. You don't know anything. Like, this is like her first mm-hmm. real job. And she's worried about her. And she's kind of, I I wasn't sure how I, I, I felt about that or what I'm supposed to feel about that. I, I don't know. I mean, Alva is there, in my opinion, for uh, Peter to have an outlet to show us, A, what a terrible guy he is. And B, uh, for him to go deeper into his psychosis. Like, there's... I'm not sure, other than, you know, just his general disdain for women based on one bad relationship, uh, why he hates Alva so much. Because he clearly hates her. Mm -hmm. He clearly hates her. I mean, that scene where he's got his eyes as big as saucers and he's telling her... this is the worst job in the entire world and you're going to do it and only you can do it and you're the lowest. And this is before the vampire. So well, like, yeah. that's the big mistake. I think that they set the bar of him being an abusive monsters asshole uh-huh. pretty fucking high before he even turns into a vampire. But I guess you're supposed to understand their part and parcel. And, and then it, I, I guess this is here to eventually kill him mm-hmm. for, to eventually get what he deserves. Mm-hmm. Cause it does lead to that. Uh, I do wish Alva had not gotten, uh, taste of of Peter's psychosis, or as much of it as she did. <laughs> right, right. You know, I wish it had ended at him jumping on desks and pointing at her. Right. <laughs> or not, not chase the, the thing. Like when he chases her into the bathroom, mm-hmm. it's so funny. Funny to me, this old lady sees this right, and Alva's there talking about, "I'm I'm going to use my gun if you come any uh-huh. closer. Stay the fuck away from me." And this old lady says, "What the fuck is going on?" And walks right out the door. Yeah, like- and then. 
so, 15, 20 minutes later, after all this is passed over, she comes up. Oh, are you okay, honey? Yeah. Fuck you, old lady. Yeah, you yeah. just abandoned me in a moment of need. You should have called the cops. Yeah. But this <laughs> Alva plot does generate some of the best moments in the film. Like him it does. slowly doing the Alva. 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 And then he jumps on her desk and's like, there mm-hmm. you are. And chases her into the bathroom. There's, too late. Too, too late. late. There's, uh, you know, the with the scene with the therapist where he's explaining the situation and saying how easy it is to file. And he goes, you just put it with the A to B to C. I mean, everybody's seen that if you've seen the Nick Cage losing his shit clip. Yeah. And I did the, the idea that he can't even uh, conceive of a universe in which things are misfiled. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he's so tightly wound with the with the or, with with the order that the world has to be in. But there's a couple things that I thought. First off, Alva going to see her brother and borrowing the blanks was the most contrived thing I've ever seen. Like we just happen to take yeah. a taxi ba- past this and we'll pa- pull over and the whole. I mean, it's just engineered to give Peter a situation where he can think that he's bulletproof and immortal. Yeah, no, completely, and it it's also. It feels haphazard because as they're driving up, it looks like the cab is just about to drive past the place. And mm-hmm. she goes on a long dialogue about how, oh, my brother's there and I need to give him some money. And yeah. by the time she's done with that speech, they're six blocks down the street. Right. But they turn right into it. Also, yeah, yeah, she yeah. says he works at that gas station there, which yeah. there's clearly this is not a gas station. Yeah, like this a is an auto shop. body yeah, yeah. mechanics shop. It, it did feel like they were just they just said, oh, throw something in here. You know, we got to get the blanks in there. Let's do it. The other, the other weirdest thing that I thought that they were trying to zig and actually zagged is I thought they set up that there was a little sexual tension between him and Alva because she's noticing like yeah. things about him being a playboy and kind of like, um, like being a little fascinated, flirtatious about that kind of thing. It felt like maybe they're setting up a Pete Campbell, Peggy Olsen kind of thing in the mm-hmm. early goings of Mad Men, but then... He's clearly just being a monster about it. And then there's also the scene where, uh, you know, this woman, like every other woman in this fucking film, has a rocking body and he sees her naked. And I felt like they're trying to bring that back, like the sexual tension, but they don't really do anything with it. No, I think it's supposed to be tied into, like, his failed loves. I think there's something there, you're right, but I don't think they ever really explore it. But Mm. it somehow feeds into the the theme. Uh, So there's one other thing that I want to talk about before we get to kind of observations in general. And it's Dr. Glazer, um, who's his psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. She, A, she has the voice of a stovepipe. Uh, it's it's so incredibly smoky, I felt like I was choking. Uh, the other thing is, she has a boy toy that's, <laughs> that's brought up somewhere in the middle of this movie, and I'm trying random. desperately to figure out what that's trying to say. Are Is it supposed to say that we're supposed to think that maybe Peter's imagining a lot more of this because that's so out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if P- if if people thought therapy worked the way it's portrayed in this movie, no wonder everyone has a burr up its ass about it because this is, I mean, I know that it's one of the therapist's creed that you're supposed to hold your client in with unconditional positive regard. But I mean, the danger of that is like you get like some someone that's a raging narcissist like Peter that just isn't honest and tries to manipulate that that you don't you, you don't get anywhere. But mm-hmm. you know that's that's kind of the process. You you get what you put you you get out of it what you put into it, and he's putting in kind of deceit and and bullshit and and like I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's taking it serious. I don't, honestly, it felt very unrealistic that this type of character would see a therapist. 
but she seems like she's a terrible therapist too. Um, Let me ask you. And which, the, yeah, the boy toy scene. It, it's so weird. Um, let me ask you which scenes you think are real and which scenes you think aren't. So the boy toy scene, in my mind, is where we start to draw a line between his real therapy sessions and his imagined therapy sessions. He makes he that's during the phone call that he makes to her to reschedule his appointment for earlier on Monday because mm-hmm. he's losing his shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that appointment he never goes to. Yeah, he never right? makes. Yeah. Presumably, it could be a fictional appointment that yeah. he's created in his own head. Right. Uh, do you think that phone call is real? Do you think, like you were saying, is the boy toy his imagination of what she's doing because that's what he does? Because everyone's got love except for him. Yeah, it could be. In fact, I, if you told me that the director intended that the therapist always, you'd understand in hindsight that she was a figment of his imagination, uh, I would believe it because she is completely unconnected to any other part of the plot. She doesn't interface with any. Like, she's like Bruce that's Willis true. in The Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in fact, you could excise all of those scenes and I almost think it'd be a stronger movie (laughs) because I thought, I thought his soliloquy in the middle of the street where he's talking about, I thought that shit just didn't make any sense and was dumb. Mm -hmm. You take all the therapist stuff out, you take and and everything that touch the, that everything that particular light touches, I feel like the movie is quite a bit stronger. You do lose the A to B to C to D, but yeah, that's probably addition by subtraction. If you're trying to make a good movie. That that's fair. Yeah. Uh, so so you don't like the final scene in this movie or I guess the final sequence of events where he's moaning in the streets and he goes and has a conversation with the building. The moaning in the streets is fine. Him like I'm a cursed vampire and I want to die, but I can't do it myself. And then an agent uh, of because they're trying to do this Bram Stoker thing where you've got uh, essentially um, a vampire hunter that's trying to save as maiden. And going into the vampire's castle to stake him. Like, that mm-hmm. that's a yeah. through line that tracks. Sure. And him, you know, losing his chance at love and moaning through the streets, also very thematic for a Dracula film. But Dra- Count Dracula never stops and has an imaginary conversation about Mina fucking Harkin or whatever her name is. Uh, a delusional talk with his, his, his therapist. Like, I... No, I, I don't... I don't... I don't understand. Because the other thing is, like... If that had transformed him and allowed him to like go on a murder spree, that would have made sense. But it just doesn't feel like it moved the fulcrum of his character anywhere because he was immediately killed after that. And he is, yeah. And uh, the the them him being sorrowful and wanting to die, I think, is undercut by the fantasy of his therapist, his spiritual advisor, absolving him of all guilt and providing him the thing that he wants most, which is connection effortless connection to another human being that gets him without having to be explained because she literally is exact has exactly the same problems that he's been you know his therapist is saying this is the person for you like he should be like at peace and not want to die but instead he welcomes death he grabs the stake and puts it right on his chest for her her brother to, to stake him so i don't know well, I after that was... after that fictional relationship falls apart yeah what do you mean if, uh, if the fictional relationship falls apart? Like, apart. when he gets back to his apartment, he's screaming and shouting at this fictional date oh. that he's just been hooked up with. He's already destroyed his fictional relationship within the 10-minute walk to his house. Uh, you know, I just interpreted so, like, that as just unconnected, crazy screaming. And you're right. He's, no, he's talking he's, to this he's having a He's yeah. having a breakup with his, his perfect woman. Right. Okay. And then he wants to die again. Like, it's, okay. it's a glimpse of, like... 
it's a glimpse into his patterns, in my opinion, that but actually is warranted at the end of this movie. Really? Because I feel like yeah. that that's, that's retreading a lot of ground. That might be fair, too. Although yeah. maybe they should have done with this, uh, you know, if they started off with him a little bit, you could squint and see this is a normal person has a chance for happiness. And this movie was the moment where he had a psychic break, psychotic break mm-hmm. that they could have used the non-vampire woman to illustrate. Like, here is a normal, healthy thing. It's not perfect, but this is how relationships work versus his love with this fictional vampire and all that. But transfer some of that to the Jackie character exactly. and not, not do that final one. But Man, then you miss out on some great Nicolas Cage. <laughs> True. I mean, I mean, I still think a lot of his psychotic stuff could have been in there. Oh, I just mean even that final scene is great Nicolas Cage. His, oh, man, because yeah. I thought that was just him doing this, like, lockjaw. <laughs> I, I, yeah, how, how is that not great Nicolas Cage? <laughs> it's Nicolas. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's like a what the fuck. But again, I, I'm going back to, like, what would be a still unhinged Nicolas Cage performance, but in the service of something greater. Gotcha. And I feel like there is like a, there is like a tight minute or hour 15 in this film that you could, you could kind of salvage and get that. Uh, Does Jessica Beals have the world's most ironclad, no nipple sex scene contract? Because Uh, yeah, it's pasty clad. It's so what's so wild is that none of the scenes require, like she was always on her belly, Uh but you can still see like, what it's it, it's full breast application prosthetic pasties and my only idea here is that the actress herself was embarrassed and didn't want to actually be nude on the set i heard that her and nick cage didn't have good chemistry that's that they, what i heard too yeah. so maybe it's just gone like i'm not going to be naked in front of this creep let me say that there there is something a little creepy about uh the way nicholas cage described his relationship even with, oh, I, I think, up on of that the doctor, too. yeah, um, Dr. Glazer, because yeah. he says, like, they went and they looked at art together at a museum because mm-hmm. she was very much into photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he ends that statement by saying she she's very artistic, she loves photography, and loves her husband very much. Hmm. And I'm like, how do you know this, uh-huh. A? And why is this important for you to bring up? Because <laughs> she this kept moment? on bringing every thirty as he was trying to put his right. arm around her and yeah. put the moves on. Yeah, that's that's what's going on in my head when I hear Nicolas Cage say that. Yeah, especially out of like just on a written page, it did and almost felt like like if you heard that in context, like, I kind of want to hear the interview that like he's almost bemoaning. Yeah, like oh yeah, she shut me down really hard, bro. Uh huh. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it was a little creepy. shades of like Donald Trump's Access Hollywood. Like, I tried to move on her like a bitch, but she wasn't. It's like, uh, uh, hmm, yeah. yeah, I don't know. The uh, audio of that might might derail his 2028 20, presidential <laughs> hopes. Uh, can we talk this creepy staircase kid? I thought that was going to be something else because yeah. they use that same POV several different times in the movie. And okay. I kept expecting him to be like some kind of. Um, gargoyle type like silent sentinel or witness to the insanity something like thematic that probably didn't work but they just didn't do it it's like he just was mildly scandalized by this naked woman running out of nick cage's apartment i think it's meant to be a joke he's also out there like it's got to be three o'clock in the morning this is after the bars have shut down and they drunk drunkenly staggered home and started to have sex and Uh i thought that was really weird it was weird uh it seems to be in there just for a joke I thought the vampire's kiss theme was pretty terrible too. The musical theme? The, da, 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 
I can't. I can't do. I can't do it. It's, it's playing right now over our conversation. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, especially the one at the fifty-nine minute mark. If you want to look for one that, like, it's. I don't know. It's there's definitely some hammer horror there that I mm-hmm. I like, but yeah. it's it's like the wrong key. It's like hmm. major instead of minor. There's something that well, they do like 15 different variations on it, right? Yeah. Different instruments, different yeah. uh, tempos. Stuff Maybe like that's that. why it feels like it's haunting my dreams. Is that it's the same, <laughs> same pretty uninspired like melody, but it just gets reinvented and remade, and it you know it it, it felt it felt like there needed to be more music than we got like they needed a couple sweets they needed something to say okay they need something to suggest like there's some genuine love they need something to suggest that he's like like a version that shows that him spiraling to psychosis and then they need a version that's really dark and oppressive but they they use a general purpose thing for everything I, I will say i actually like the theme um i think it has like this gothic feel to it i think mm-hmm. when they go for like the jazz theme it doesn't quite work although right. if you want to say oh yeah it's a movie about new york and the the pressures of the streets mm-hmm. maybe you get away with the jazz thing i don't know it didn't do much for me but i don't think the music was actually very bad i will agree with you they probably need a little more variation mm-hmm. using the same theme over and over and over again too much yeah something at night maybe like a like a nighttime version of versus daytime because there's a lot of also them playing with him you know being afflicted by light or crosses or things like that that they could have used the dark version of that theme to kind of sell his turning into a, a fake vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as it is, it, it felt like um, it felt cheap is what it did. Like they commissioned one piece of music and they just arranged it. It's like when uh, Marge Simpson got that fancy designer suit and she tailored it 16 different ways to try to give it, try to make it look fresh every single time she went to the country club. Well, from uh, what I read, it was cheap. They actually went uh, yeah. and got like a communist Russian, um, orchestra to perform this and it was like a dollar a day per performer so they had like a 75 piece symphony oh, going to to make this fucking theme uh, right like but it was yeah. like totally budget yeah the year after that when the the soviet bloc fell them they would have been 15 times more expensive yeah, but absolutely, they were able to yeah. get these starving eastern europeans the pretty much uh, interesting the final thing that i really have to talk about is what the fuck mimes what the fuck? Are we sure they weren't just outperforming and the director's like, fuck, Beerman's like, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll throw them in there too. I might buy that, but they do the same performance twice in a row it as does. he's walking in and out. So I noticed the second time I watched this when I was taking my notes and whatnot that there is a particular type of theatricality. Like, this is a man assaulting... A like the, a woman scorns uh. a man like by like giving a fit, like a, an insult spits on him and then he slaps her okay. and then she kind of cowers and they do this kind of like weird bat I I think it's a little on the nose like this is exactly in, in one five second mime act uh-huh. this is the movie this is gotcha. a, a, a a man who feels aggrieved and decides to brutalize a woman to regain his his manhood and honor. Which I think it's just too, further besmirches it. It's way too on the nose. Uh, yeah. But at least now it connects. Hmm. And I understand why it's there. Before, oh, I had no fucking I this idea. part of the cycle with these types of dudes is like they have in mind a certain way the world works and like that they themselves are honorable men. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they get like a perceived insult from the women and they do something completely unwarranted or brutalized, which 
you know, doesn't jive, doesn't internally jive with how, like, you know, obviously an honorable man wouldn't be in this situation. If he was, he wouldn't slap a woman or whatever. And that just, you know, it's a, per- a perpetual downward cycle. Mm-hmm. Like the the movie showing that that just that 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 toxic shame and the fact that they can't get the shit together just uh, makes them. Oh, that's a hundred percent in there. Like, look yeah. at the stuff with the contract. Right. Right. The contract is central to this movie, and it's. I think it's both central because of the pressures of his job right. m- making him stressed out and deeper into the psychosis. But it's also, like you were saying, reflection of his own vision of himself. Like, this reflects badly on him. Yeah. That his secretary can't find this file, that he couldn't find this file, that it's mm-hmm. been misfiled. Yeah. Uh, he can't possibly understand how that could happen. And then that phone call that he has yeah. with the guy who's requesting the file, and he essentially says, nah, no worry about it. Yeah. You know, I get it. It's, it's 30 years ago. I, it's probably going to take you a while to dig it up. Who knows? Right. Know? But then he he does, he does. talks about, oh, the song and dance I'll have to do. Right. And then, he, oh, he's so pissed. He's he's saying he's going to leave us. I didn't get a word. He's putting that all on Alva, right? Yeah. He's not taking any personal responsibility right. for being a dick about it. And it does seem like by the end of the movie that it's not, it's just, an, it's just a vehicle to extract misery from this woman. Because yeah. when she finally finds the contract uh not only does he not care but that's the biggest assault of the movie uh, the, yeah. well again before he tears a woman's throat out right but it's uh, it's the biggest assault yet in the movie so uh it it is kind of interesting that way uh real quick before we end this i wanted to propose an alternate theory my own personal pet theory on the plot of this movie a grand cageification theory i i think it it nicely ties it all together uh, what's your opinion on the idea that Nicolas Cage, Peter, Lou, has simply been infected with rabies by the bat who flew in his window? And that it's driving him mad, it's causing him to act like a freak. Yeah, because there's a couple of things people. of him retching and gagging after, like, drinking or eating something that could be consistent with that diagnosis. Okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm listening. And it could also be consistent with he drank a bunch of blood from the neck of, right. from, from a pigeon and the neck right. of a woman and or maybe ate a cockroach. And, yeah, yeah, God, the stuff that would make you gag and throw up. Right. Or it could be that he's got rabies and he's dying a slow death anyway. And in the process, he's just raging out. Am I going to have to watch Vampire's Kiss again to see whether this tracks through? The answer is no. No, no. I don't ever plan on seeing this movie again. But uh, I think it tracks, though. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. It's uh, it's as valid interpretation as any. And like I said, I'm not going to go and launch a thesis against it. I'll let the, the Bald Blue family do that. Season of the Cage.